And we're back. After taking a week off of one of the more drama-filled weekends uh, in recent memory for Oregon football, uh, we are back to preview the Las Vegas Bowl, uh, go over the hiring of Mario Cristobal. Uh, so I, Rusty Ryan, and uh, our good friend Ifo Bumaye are we're, we're both here right now recording in the studio to bring you this week's edition of Sling and Quack. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Rusty. I, I believe it's pronounced Cristobal. It's, it's, it's not Cristobal. It's not Cristobal? Are you being serious right no, now, or a, are we making a joke like Cristobal? We're making a Mario Ta joke. Oh, Mario Ta. That was Moving so on. annoying. Okay. That went went far over everybody's head, so that's Bad okay. Jokes. Well, I thought I legitimately said it wrong. You know, it's you are very white. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so we have a new head coach, full time head coach. Uh, what was your? Okay, first off, was he your number one pick? Um, he was like one A, and Levitt was one B. Yeah. Um, it, in my opinion, and this is mainly due to the short-term recruiting implications, but I thought that we had built so much momentum over the past season um, that it was really important to capitalize that on that. As long as Rob Mullins thought that anyone from the staff was a good long-term fit. Um, you know, if, if nobody from the staff was a good long-term fit, then obviously that short-term bump in recruiting is not worth the long-term risk. Um, but as long as there were guys on the staff that Mullins thought were very capable and had the potential and the demeanor and all that type of stuff to take over the program... Then I thought that was the best way forward, especially considering the the crop of coaches that we had available at that time. Um, I mean, we got a late start into the hiring game. We were probably, what, a week and a half, two weeks at least, behind most of the other schools. Oh, at uh, least. It had pretty much ended for most people. Yeah, except for Tennessee. Um, but we don't want to be Tennessee. So... Yeah, I, I thought and that keeping someone. Tennessee. I, I thought that keeping someone on the staff was, I, an, I, an ideal scenario. Um, I thought that Cristobal was probably the most likely, because as much as we've loved what Levitt has done to the defense, um, he does have some baggage with him in how he departed USF, um, and. I mean, let's be honest. We we love his personality. We love that he's crazy on Twitter. But it takes a very strong athletics director to be able to have a guy like Coach Levitt as the face of the program. Um, so all in all, I figured that probably Cristobal or as a dark horse, maybe Joe Salvea would be head coach candidates. Um, I'm very pleased. I am really by the um, 
yeah, right word. The support that the current team gave to Mario Cristobal. I mean, it it was finals week, and according to reports I've seen, within half an hour, seventy of our kids signed out the petition to to keep Cristobal as head coach. Uh, they that's in a week where they don't need to be in the facilities. They're not practicing. They don't need to be around. So it says a lot to me that that percentage of the team was behind uh, we've We have immediate dividends in the number of assistant coaches that have chosen to stay on um, and, and the number of recruits that they may have decommitted when Taggart left, but now they're back on the bus. So end of my two-and-a-half-minute-long thesis on our coaching staff. Is everybody on the bus? Good. Great. Yeah, uh, like the as expected, there were uh, there were some decommits. I was surprised to see that it was all the four-star wide receivers at once. <laughs> um, but they all said uh, that Oregon was still a top pick. So I think... And it was also really surprising, too, to see the recruits come out and be so vocal about Cristobal and or Levitt being able to keep the whole class together. So I think time will tell right now uh, in that regard about whether they'll be able to keep everything together. They have a huge recruiting event this weekend, uh, which was a little inconvenient uh, in a way that they made the Vegas Bowl because it pretty much stomps on all the plans that they had. Uh but signing day, early signing day is the 20th through the 22nd. So this is the, uh, could be a good chance to show recruits that Oregon's still in a really good spot going into next year. Um, maybe get a few of those commits back before the signing period. But uh, I kind of agree with you uh, on Levitt that he's not necessarily someone that we'd want to be the, the face of the program and whatever baggage, mostly unfair that I think uh, is with him from USF uh, was is definitely going to be a factor in a head coaching job somewhere. Um, I know there's a lot of circumstances around uh, his dismissal from USF and I know he won a lawsuit against the school afterwards. Um, but, you know, I mean, suing your former employer is something that's kept Mike Leach out of a few jobs, according to rumors. So go balls. It could be one of the things where he's a fantastic defensive coordinator, but I don't. I don't know when push comes to shove if athletic directors want to take that plunge with Levitt. Um, yeah, I percent agree. It's. I think that as long as he keeps performing as a defensive coordinator, which he has done. Uh, he, I mean, he did it at the 49ers after he got fired. He did it at Colorado. He's done it this past season at Oregon. As long as he continues to do that, eventually he will get a head coaching job if that's something that he wants. Um, but it's going to have to take an athletic director with a very strong, trusting personality to allow him to take over the reins, um, which is fine. You know, that's that's the reality of his job situation right now. And to be honest, at selfishly as a Duck fan, that kind of plays into our hands a little bit because hopefully he can continue to make our defense better as he uh, stays for another year, hopefully 
fingers crossed. Yeah, and I think he's going to stay in Oregon for... I think it's likely that he stays for one more year. Um, the reason why is because Taggart was so late to move that it kind of uh, took away, I think, any real consideration schools had for him because they didn't know until very late that they could possibly poach him. So I think a lot of the jobs that he could have been a candidate for uh, were closed by the time they theoretically became available. Also, and, and the, the schools that would have them, I mean, no Power 5 job is open right now. And I think of the, like the group of five, I don't think many of them could even pay what Oregon would able to would what Oregon would be able to pay him as a coordinator? No, absolutely not. I so, mean, at that point, you're looking, you're looking at taking a pay cut and going to a group of five school where your talent level is going to be significantly lower. So, I, I just don't know how attractive that would be. Um, but who knows? You know, it, it could be one of those situations. If you want to be a head coach badly enough, you'll really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, or he could value the situation that he's in. I mean, that's. It seems like most of the assistant coaches value the situation that they're currently in. Yeah. Um, Joe Salave is staying. Marcus Arroyo got promoted to offensive coordinator on a, I think, a three-year deal. Um, a lot of the other coaches seem to be staying. So things, you know, if we were gonna lose a head coach in the manner that we did, which almost never happens anywhere, not just at Oregon. Yeah. Uh, I think this is really, a best at least case right scenario. now, this is best case scenario in terms of how it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, and I think too, the problem that I would have had with someone is that you can say he's a great recruiter, which is true, but I think many in the coaching circle consider, uh, Mario to be better. Um, you can say that he has a better coaching record than Mario, which is true, but also you have to recognize the the differences between Texas A&M and Florida International when he took over. Um, and then um, also, it's you could make the argument that someone was similar to. Be careful! I'm going to be careful on this one is similar to Helfrich in the sense that most of his wins came with a Heisman-winning quarterback. We're not on TV, so you can't see my face, but I'm uh, I'm shocked at the Helfrich comparison. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's just it's just another example. Like, if if it didn't work out, and uh, and we're two years down the line. That would be the argument. That would be the fact that people point to as to why it was a bad decision from the start. So I know everyone's gone over this in pretty big detail, but when Cristobal took over at FIU, it was basically worse off than an expansion team. I was listening to this on the uh, the campus conversation podcast ESPN does, but FIU apparently had a lot of penalties um, so that they couldn't even be signing full classes. Uh, they had a pretty big... They basically couldn't feel that even a competitive... Run. And the weight room was also like a converted racquetball court, the film room. 
they didn't have a film library, but what film they used was in a like old shower area, like in a locker room. The coaches literally had their office in outdoor trailers. Yeah. And this is not a power five school. This this isn't even like a high school. Yeah, if if you took FIU at the time and you compared it to Oregon State, Oregon State would be a far superior job in pretty much every measure except for uh, recruiting base. But then if you're FIU, you have to compete against seven other schools in the state that are better than you. So, so uh, and so when you see the twenty-seven forty-seven record, it's really misleading. Um, I, and I think it's a good indicator too that as soon as Cristobal uh, was fired, which pretty much every FIU fan will say was absolute BS and that they hate their athletic director, uh, I think it says a lot that Saban was the first person to hire him. Like pretty much he got picked up immediately uh, by Saban. So, yeah, I, and, I and, <clears throat> sorry, one last point. And one thing is too, like if you look at like I was going through some forums and comments, which is a terrible mistake to start with, but I was looking at like a lot of the affiliations and everything and people who were not living in the South were really kind of like, this is weird. I don't understand this, but anybody who was in like an SEC, especially Florida, like an SEC state was a lot of them were very glad that Crystal Ball was going to be staying away from Florida and other Southern schools. Because Crystal Ball was a candidate for the Miami job uh, before they hired Mark Red, which is probably a safer option between the two. So there's there's a lot of unknowns about Crystal Ball, but I think that there are enough positives right now. There's enough potential for this to be a good hire. And like you said, like a pretty much best case scenario for where the program was uh, when exactly. Tyler left. I, I think Cristobal is really kind of like a... I mean, anytime you hire a head coach, it's filled with... Cristobal is a relatively high-floor, high-ceiling guy. Yeah. Um, he, yes, he doesn't have a ton of head coaching experience... Um, but he, he's been around enough high quality programs where he knows what a national championship caliber approach looks like. And everything I've seen of him over the last year, he brings that mentality that you need, um, to, to really make an impact. So uh, I think we're in good hands. Um, what do you what do you think about the Las Vegas Bowl? I'm glad you asked. I just finished writing a huge article on it. Um, so Oregon opened as, depending on on where you went, um, Oregon opened as a five point favorite. Since it had, they've moved to a uh, seven point favorite with 78% of the money coming in on Oregon, 73% of the tickets coming in on Oregon. Um, the over-under has actually gone down from 63 to 61, but I have probably picked against Oregon, looking at the spread, uh, for most games this year, and I am actually picking Trader. them for this game. Trader. I'm actually picking them this game. Um 
And that's because of a few reasons. Uh, one, I think that, like uh, Mario even pointed out, I think the coaching transition galvanized the team more than it deflated it. Typically, coaching coaching moves is either pretty good or pretty bad. And I think in this area, in this in this instance, it worked out pretty well because I think it's the team has really come together based on their support around Cristobal um, and just really being there basically as good teammates for each other, which was a constant that we saw pretty much throughout the season. Because if these guys didn't get along, they weren't great teammates, they would have probably crumbled after the, uh, uh, like during the, after like the Washington game. Yeah, that, that didn't go well. Um, no. I, I would agree. I, I think I, I'm cautiously optimistic about this game, despite our, our bowl history in Las Vegas, um, for a couple reasons. One, I agree that I think something as drastic as the last week in that coaching change, um, you know, it's easy for a team at the end of a season to be like, especially a game before Christmas to be like, all right, it's the end of the season. Let's play this bowl. Let's get out. Let's go home. You know, like, like it's easy to be a team that doesn't show up and just mails it in and then loses a bowl game because of it. I mean, a lot of the bowl games that you'll watch, the winning team will be the team that's more excited to be there. Um, and I, I think it would have been easy if things did not go well with the coaching hire for this team to to mail it in. Um, but given that there's so much excitement around the program over the past year, and given that there's so much excitement that among the players that they got their guy, there's no excuse to not give full effort. Um, so that would be number one why I'm cautiously optimistic. Number two is it's unknown whether Royce Freeman and um, Tyrell Crosby will play, but they have been practicing all week, so you know that's a positive sign. Um, I really hope that Tyrell Crosby <clears throat> plays um, just because I hope that both of them play because it would be nice to send them both out with a win, um, but I totally understand if they don't. Um, I think the offense could probably withstand Royce not playing as crazy as Yeah. Yeah. More than we could withstand the loss of Tyrell Crosby. I mean, he was the top rated tackle in the country out of any school, according to pro football focus. Um, And, you know, that's, that's a big loss. Despite the fact that I do have confidence in our backups on the line and, there has been some shuffling as the season has gone on. Um, I think if we if he can play, that puts us in a very good position. Um, third would be twofold. The fact that Herbert is back and the fact that our defense at this point has had the full year to get into Levitt's scheme. We've seen what was a porous pass defense last year transition into you know maybe maybe not the most fearsome defense in terms of taking the ball away um but we're one of the leaders in pass breakups in the country and and i think our secondary 
could really potentially feast on a Boise quarterback who has been up and down this year. Um, I mean, Brett Rippon was their – he's their starter. Um, he was really poor to start the season. He's continually gotten better, but there's there's opportunity there to make some plays if I'm on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, and if I had to pick, I think Crosby will play um, because he was a, he's from Vegas, and it makes just a lot of sense. It's it's far more likely for a running back to get injured also uh, than a tackle. Um, so I think Crosby does play, but I think Roy could sit it out, and I would be and I would be fine with either sitting it out because yeah, I, you know, I think at this point it's. We've gotten to the point now where there are so many bowls and there's so much money on the line for these guys where I understand the fans wanting to see these guys one last time or wanting to put it all out there for your teammates and so on and so forth. But these guys have put in four really long years for the program. They have been nothing but exemplary student-athletes they have earned the right to make whatever decision they think is best for them. So I have no problem either way. Yeah, and bowl games are really just glorified exhibition games. These don't matter at all, really. So a couple fun facts I found while writing the article. A couple fun facts I found. Um, When... Uh, Herbert was starting. Oregon was above the 90th percentile on offense in every game, except for one, which was the Arizona State game at 79%. When Herbert was not starting, the offense was below the 25th percentile in every game, except for one, which was against Utah when they were 85th. But they only had to throw the ball 13 times, and I don't think a pass. And Charles Nelson threw one of those. So what you're saying is that Herbert makes a difference in the offense. Yes. Hmm. I never could have guessed. <laughs> yeah, base, number, numbers don't lie. I know the eye could have tricked you this year, but the numbers don't lie. Okay, um, so that was fun, fun fact number one. What's fun fact number two? Uh, fun fact number two. Football study hall thinks that Oregon, if you adjust, like the adjusted win, uh, the adjusted point difference, is Oregon by ten and a half against Arizona State. Part of me wonders if this is a mistake, or no, the adjusted scoring margin for Oregon against Arizona State. What was a 35-37 loss? is adjusted to be in a, a nine-and-a-half point win. Oh, missed Which, opportunities. That that was the only game this whole year where I look at it, and I'm like, yeah, we got outcoached that game. Offense was not ready for the blitz. Defense, defense, that was just a terrible first quarter. And the defense... It's inexplicable. How do you get outcoached by Todd Graham? The guy has a crew cut. It's 2016. 
and and they just had I mean their receiver I forget his I forget his name um, but he was just a matchup nightmare against Thomas Graham outside that was oh yeah um, I'm thinking about it I'm thinking about it it's on the tip of my tongue uh, Nikhil Harry I think yeah Nikhil Harry six four. 215-ish pounds. That is a large human being. Yeah, sounds pretty big. Someday I'll grow to be that big. Eventually, when I grow up. Um, you know, what? so what do you, what do you think are the areas that Oregon can exploit against Boise State? What do you think are the areas to be concerned about that they may be able to be to exploit against us. Yeah, so the what Oregon how Oregon could be exploited is basically by explosion plays. That's the one weakness um, that the defense really has on uh, according to the advanced stats. I mean something that we saw a lot. Like the defense did a fantastic job of getting people in the long third downs, having a bunch of like two, three yard plays in a row only to give up a 40-yard bomb. And it would really be... It, it wasn't like a third in Pelham scenario, but it was just a lot of great defense bookended by just a, a... by a terrible, terrible play on defense. Um, so Boise State hasn't been particularly uh, explosive this season. They're about average in explosiveness. Uh, but what Boise State really excels at is preventing explosive plays. Um, they are, I think, top 10 in both uh, defending explosive plays on through the air and on the ground. So, um, but the one thing that... Let me double-check my notes here. Yeah, but the one the one thing that I think uh, Oregon could blow it open with is a few just absolute deep balls. Like, Boise State really has to compensate for a ground game that they really haven't seen this year other than against San Diego State. Uh, they get sucked in, and then Herbert just is able to throw a few bombs downfield. I I especially agree with that. So Boise State's defense is led by the Mountain West Defensive Player of the Year. He's a um, weak side linebacker, Leighton Vander Esch, and he has, what, about 30... 28 more tackle. I'm not, I'm not very good at math. 28 more tackles than the next... I was next, told there would be no math. Than, than the next leading tackler on their team. Um, and what really struck out to me when I was watching... When I've watched Boise State throughout the season, but then also when I was looking at their stats, is... So a linebacker is their leading tackler. That's not a surprise. Their second leading tacklers is a safety and a cornerback. And as we know from the past few years of Oregon Duck defense, if your leading tacklers are in the secondary, that does not, yeah, that does not spell good <coughs> things. So, um, Boise State's defensive strength is certainly in stopping the run. Um, they their defensive yards given up per game, rushing wise is 125 it's 19th nationally and third in their conference in the mountain west 
they allowed only 200-yard rushers the entire season. So despite what I said about Royce, you know, if Royce doesn't play, us being able to um, deal with that a little bit, I I think it's going to be a big deal if we can have some success rushing early and then use the play action like we've seen with Herbert over the last couple games where we can get guys sucked up and then throw the ball deep. Um, We saw it against uh, Oregon State where Dylan Mitchell had some really nice deep balls. Um, We've seen it with Herbert throwing deep to Johnny Johnson III at, at the beginning of the year. If we can have that type of explosiveness, it will bode very well with for us. Um, if we get bogged down offensively and we're having to have eight, nine, 12 play drives, that's the situation where I think we could get in trouble. Um, because Boise State, I mean, it, everybody, myself included, kind of wrote Boise State off after they lost at home to Virginia. Um, yeah. But but what this Boise State team is, is a team that has consistently improved over the course of the season. Um, if you look at, uh, again, going back to the S&P Plus, if you go back to their, their offensive percentile and their defensive percentile rating as the season has gone on, you see that it continually increases uh, until you get to their two matchups with Fresno State late in the season. Same deal with their defense. They started out very strong against Troy. Whatever, that's fine. Um, (laughs) But then, other than that, they started out pretty slowly and they just kept improving. Um, You know, this isn't the Boise State of old that's going to break out a whole bunch of trick plays um, but they are the Boise State of old in that they're very well coached. They don't have great athletes, um, but if you let them in the game, they will win the game. Um, I mean, you saw that in in their their game against Colorado State, which was I guess a month ago at this point. Um, I think in that game, CSU was up twenty five, twenty eight at one point in the first half, and they came out second half uh it, it was one of those classic mountain west games that nobody's really watching but it's actually a really good game um they battled back and, and they eventually won in overtime uh forced a couple fumbles made some explosion plays had a couple long drives and if you allow a team like boise state to stick around bad things will happen to you um so i, I i'm optimistic i think we especially with Herbert, we have enough explosive potential to really let our athletes do the talking. But there's always that potential against Boise State that they bog things up. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, uh, Boise State won their conference championship game off of a 90-yard touchdown drive at the end of the game because Fresno State wasn't able to put them away. Um and really what stood out in their loss to Virginia is that they only ran the ball 24 times uh, and averaged 1.3 yards a carry. That is so, not how you win. Yeah, I, I mean, it's one of the, it's a scenario, too, where they had 
353 yards through the air, but even if it's like Washington State and you force them to, to pass and you take away the run, if you're able to make a team one-dimensional, even if that dimension is to their strength, it makes everything much, much easier because you know exactly what they're going to be doing, basically. So last question about the Vegas Bowl that I have. If you were our, if you were our coaches – what would you game? What would you game plan for? Um, I would game plan for. A I know I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, so I mean, I would game plan game plan for basically a lot of pre-snap changes. Uh, Boise State is always, even with Peterson and all the trick plays and everything. Boise State always set up their plays very well using motions, setting up people in certain formations so that they had favorable blocking angles. Uh, Boise State does a lot of things really well before the snap to set them up for success on offense. Um, on defense, I think it's just a lot of... When Oregon's on... Um, or when Oregon's attacking their defense, it's, I think, more than anything else, just having the right attitude as cliche as that sounds because Boise State guys are not at the same ceiling level as Oregon's guys but they execute at such a high level um, and they really outperform um, what anybody should reasonably be expecting and I think a lot of that just comes down to a certain mindset so the offensive line especially has to match them there on the bright side too Boise State's uh, front seven doesn't have a ton it has pretty low havoc ratings so I don't think there will be that much crazy stuff going on I don't think Herbert's going to be running for his life at really any point during the game yeah I, I, that's the thing that makes me comfortable um, is I would be very surprised considering the strength of our offensive line and the weakness of Boise State's defensive front seven um, at, at creating chaos, I would be very surprised if Herbert was really facing consistent pressure on any sort of ba- regular basis. Yeah. So in other news, we have a basketball season going on. And we're in the non-conference season right now, which means that every pay, every game is going to be unnecessarily exciting. It. Yeah, it's been a um, uh, it's been an interesting week. So, in the last week, I, I guess we missed um, we missed recording last week. So, in the last like week plus, we had our the longest home win streak in the country broken against Boise State on a second half buzzer beater. Uh, we played another goddamn Broncos. They're just the worst. Um, We had another game against the Mountain West team, which was close through halftime, and then we just blew the doors off of Colorado State. Uh, I think we outscored them by like 37 points in the second half. Uh Uh, And then on Monday night, we avoided a upset against Texas Southern, I honestly could not even tell you what conference they're in. Um, the but this is... 
I was going to guess that, but I didn't want to put myself out there. Um, I, mean, what, I guess what, what are your thoughts on the team overall over the last week and a half? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's so frustrating watching all these non-conference games being so unnecessarily close. Um, I don't know. One thing that's really st- stuck out to me all year is just how good Peyton Pritchard is. Um, and I know right now we're actually recording during uh, the game against Portland State where uh, they have 110 points combined right now with 12 minutes left to go in the second half. Uh, but Wooten, is that how you say his name, Wooten, had just a few monster yeah, plays in the first. Kenny Wooten. Uh, so I have thoughts. Go ahead. Kenny, Wood, Kenny Wooten is going to be a problem. He has been in my opinion um, the most impressive player over the last week and a half um, I think that Mikhail McIntosh is going to be very important for us as we get going on this season because he fills a role of being a physical guy Kenny Wooten has a lot of athleticism and he's He's probably one of the best athletes on the team. Um, but being so young, being a true freshman, I don't think he has that physical killer instinct down in the post yet where Mikhail McIntosh is that guy who will remind you of Elgin Cook with a jump shot where he's willing to do the dirty work. Um, I, don't, I don't know. This past week, it's we've seen steps forward. We've seen regression a little bit, and it's been varying degrees of success. Um, I agree with you that Peyton Pritchard, for the most part, this season has been fantastic. Um, I actually think over the last week and a half, even a little bit in the PK-80, um, he's, he's kind of fallen victim a little bit to the... Uh, I'm going to put it on my shoulders. I'm going to dribble the ball and let 20 seconds of the clock run out. And then you're kind of scrambling at the end of the clock. Um, Part of that is because the offensive flow has been a little bit stagnant at times. Um, It's, it's easy when you're a freshman or when you're learning how to play with each other to just watch the guy with the ball. And, And as we all know, from watching the team last year, from watching Dana Altman over his time in Oregon, the Oregon offense is best when everyone is moving, everyone is setting screens. Um, they they use a lot of those little flare screens at the top of, of the three-point line, um, similar to actually what the, the Portland Trailblazers do in Terry Stotts' offense. So for the most part in the last week and a half, the offensive ball movement and the offensive off-ball movement has been better than it was in the PK-80, but it still has moments where it's just stagnant. It's just iso ball. Um, I think that this team 
offensively, I've seen them kind of settle for outside shots early, where, especially against the co- the competition that we're playing, you can um, you could force the issue, you could drive the lane and be a little bit more aggressive and get to the line. Uh, they did that against CSU, and and that paid dividends for them down the stretch because they were in the double bonus very early in that game. Um, I think that similar to what I've said earlier, one of our weaknesses going forward this year is always going to be our rebounding ability. Um, our starters, especially with Roman Sorkin not getting a ton of time lately, we're just not that tall of a team. We're pretty long for how tall we are, but we're really just not that tall of a team. So we really need to swarm rebounds. Um, you know, if we're on fire from deep, things are going well. If we're not, things slow down a little bit. Um, and my last thought is, is defensively, it's been better, but this team has a very high rate of playing really good defense for 20 seconds of a shot clock and then missing a rotation and bailing guys out with a, a foul. And that's something that I, I've seen it drive Coach Altman crazy on the sideline. And if if they're going to be successful when it comes to Pac-12 conference play, they're going to need to, to learn to move their feet a little bit more on, on defense. Um I don't know. I feel like that was like an overly pessimistic summary of the last <laughs> and a half. I I think we're getting there. Like you can see them getting there. Elijah Brown had just an absolutely amazing second half against Colorado State, where he was like, I don't know, four four from six or five for seven from three. Uh, we at that point in that game where we're really running out on the break and and finishing transition buckets. Um, Portland, the start of the Portland State game tonight, we were finishing threes at just like an incredible clip. Um, but it's oh it's not gosh. finished. Sorry. It's, it's, <laughs> There's just a just big you. layup that just got missed. It's four. Yeah. It's a four-point game right now, 9-21 left. Yeah, it, Paul White just missed a bunny. But, you know, it's I, – I, I think I'm – I don't – I'm excited about this team because it has so much potential and you really just like, you don't know what's going to happen, which can be extremely frustrating. But for me, I didn't go into this season with really any expectations because of how much turnover we were having. You know, I, I look at this at like, I look at the early Jordan Bell, Dylan Brooks, Tyler Dorsey years where they were still figuring out how to be competitive at the collegiate level. Um, You can tell that the talent is there. You could tell that the instincts are there. It's just on and off. So, and if if I trust anybody to to get a team in shape and improve a team over the course of the season, I'm going to trust Coach Altman because he's proven – year over year over year like five six years in a row now that that's just what he does so i think we'll be okay um you're right this non-conference schedule has certainly been frustrating at times because there are times where you're like oh okay we just made five threes in a row we're, we're the best team ever but then there are times where you're like what the hell are we doing what are you we literally doing are. yeah 
I just love basketball. It's so much fun. It, it's great. Great. All right. Uh, any any closing comments? I like how I was just the entire basketball segment. You have no closing. You have no thoughts on basketball. Look, man, I am just I, – I don't know what to think about, like, any of this right now because – I get the feeling that the team we're going to see once we hit conference play is going is very different from the team that we're watching now. Yeah, that's fair. That, I mean, that's completely fair. You, I don't know what to expect with this team. I expect that they play hard, but that's about it. <coughs> yeah. Other than that, my closing thoughts are: Let's Falcon punch the Broncos. Falcon punch. I mean, hopefully, fingers crossed. It would really suck to lose for a third time in a row. Like, it would really, really suck. Don't you put that evil on me. All right, so that'll do it for Ifo Bumaye and I. Uh, thank you for joining us on what could be the penultimate episode of Sling and Quack. Um, we will talk to you guys again next week, hopefully after a Las Vegas Bowl win. <laughs>